we see in Psalm 65 and we see here in Zechariah 8 this morning, a picture of a God that is rich in mercy and that blesses his people and that showers his grace on this earth upon people so undeserving of it. This morning, uh, the title of the message is God's Restoring Grace. I was contemplating between that and, and also the theme of us being blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. And those two themes were resounding throughout this morning. So, I want to start out um, relating this to, to my own life and, and asking you some questions. Uh, have you ever given a gift to someone, not because it's what they wanted, but it's what you knew they needed, right? Um, have you ever told someone that they had something in their teeth, right? That's a gift. No one wants to hear that. It might be some, somewhat offensive, but it's a gift they need to hear. Have you ever done that in the wrong way? Husbands, have you ever tried to give a vacuum cleaner to your wife for her anniversary? I, I hope not. No, that, that's a gift that she probably doesn't want. Um, have you ever received socks for your birthday? Uh, I know as a kid, that is probably the most disappointing gift you can possibly receive. Uh, my, my roommate in college would always say that he would always get socks for his birthday, and it was an ongoing joke in the family. Um, he always had to get socks. Um, and I also remember seeing a home movie of myself when I was a kid. I was probably about four years old at Christmas time, opening up gifts, and my grandpa happened to um, give me a check so I could start working up for a college fund. And I was only four years old at the time. And I hand this piece of paper, and as a four-year-old, I look at this piece of paper, this little slip, and I throw it aside and go to the light bright, <laughs> right? As a four-year-old, I have no idea what's on this paper. It's a gift that was, was needed and good for me, but I didn't want it at the time. I didn't know what it meant. Um, and I didn't receive it well. But conversely, when you do want a gift, when you want something and someone knows the desire of your heart and, and they give it to you, um, don't you want to just tell everyone about it because you're so excited you receive the gift? Um, you want to sh- you want, and that joy really isn't incomplete until you share it with others, right? If you're given a gift and you don't tell anyone about it, it's like, oh, I have to tell people um, because God created us communally like that. I know, for example, Yasmin and I, for our, in our wedding, wedding registry, we ask for a lot of board games. And we receive them, but they do no good sitting in our closet, right? These board games, although fun, um, if, if it's just Yasmin and I playing, eh, it, it's okay. But when there's a large group of people all laughing, um, conversating, and playing these games, that's when the joy is complete. And so we see that we receive gifts. Sometimes we want, sometimes we don't want. And the gift giver usually has a purpose behind why it's given. This morning, we see God, the ultimate gift giver, giving gifts that Israel and we, God's people, want and some we don't want. But ultimately, he purposes to give the gifts. It's not haphazard or accidental, um, but he is sovereign over what he gives. So, we'll start out this morning by talking about We'll talk about three points, or four main points today. God's purposeful love. We'll also talk about our necessary obedience, our great hope, and God's magnetic grace. So we'll see these four, four themes throughout this passage in Zechariah 8 this morning. I want to start out with God's purposeful love.
We see in verses 14 and 15 of Zechariah that God says he purposes to act in two different ways. If you'll look in verse 14, he says he, he purposes to bring disaster. And then a little later, he says he purposes to bring good. Now, this word is important for us to consider because it, it tells us a lot about the character of God. I think too often we can say, well, God loves us or God loves his people, but we don't really dive in and understand what that love means. Um, if we love God and we want to know him, we should spend time examining what this love actually looks like. Um, wouldn't you agree? So, so back to the text. If God is purposing to do these things to us and we know he's doing them out of love, what does this mean? We don't really hear people talking like that using this verb anymore. You don't hear someone say that they, they purposed to make themselves a sandwich for lunch or they purposed to pay their taxes before April 15th. You don't hear that very often, do you? No, you, that verb is kind of irregular. Um, you hear people more often saying that they planned to make themselves a bologna and cheese sandwich or they determined to pay their taxes before April 15th. You, see, you hear those verbs. You don't hear purposed very often. But I think that word is so essential for us to see and understand the character of God. The Hebrew word is zamam, which means to consider, purpose, or devise. So although we don't use it very much, um, it tells us about the nature of God's love. In verse 14, God purposed to bring disaster to Israel when they turned away from him and turned to idols. We see God lovingly bringing disaster upon his disobedient children. Lovingly bringing disaster. Now, those two words, we don't often hear together, do we? Um, You you rarely hear those in the same sentence. Um, But God knew that in order to get the attention of his people, in order to truly love them, and to allow them to see the, the, the spiritual oppression they were under, he brought physical oppression, right? He scattered them and allowed them to be oppressed by other nations so that they could come to understand that life without God is not such a good thing. Maybe this has happened in your life. I know in mine, God purposed to, to bring disaster upon my life so that I would see my need for him. Um, when I was uh, after, my summer before my senior year of high school, I was in a, a, a bad car accident where God, God purposed the car to roll off the road and purposed to keep me alive so that I would see the foolishness of, of my sin and my, my dependence on alcohol and see the spiritual slavery I was in. And he used that as one of the things to lead me back to Christ. God purposed that disaster to happen lovingly. We see here in verse 14 that, um, that Israel's fathers had turned away from God and, and turned to idols. And God was provoked to wrath as any good husband would be when their wife is unfaithful or leaves them. God is not provoked to indifference, but true love does not want to see the one they love go off into sin. This this wrath of God is not a short temper. God doesn't have a short fuse, but it's a wise and deliberate hate for unfaithfulness. And unfortunately, we are the ones that are unfaithful. Not just Israel. This isn't just some history book lesson, but we are God's people 
And we have all, as the Bible says, we have all gone astray. We have all followed our own hearts and become unfaithful to God. We are born in that sin. And I think that sin is a lot more grievous to God than we can possibly ever understand. If someone's unfaithful in a human relationship, it's a wicked thing. Um, because, um, because you're breaking their heart and you're also going against, going against them, right? Against the, the promise or covenant you've made. How much more when we turn and sin against and are unfaithful to a holy and perfect God, one who has never wronged us in any way, one who is completely pure and innocent in all he does. And that is our condition from birth. We are rebellious sinners who, although we are aware of God and his laws, hate to submit to them. We see in Romans 1, 18 through 21, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made. So we see God, and we see his nature through creation and what he's made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse in verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We, like the Israelites, have gone astray after idols and turned aside from the living God. We thought, it's easier to live for myself. It's more comfortable not to go to church and hold myself, keep myself accountable amongst other people. It's easier not to read my Bible. It's easier not to pray. I'm more comfortable with being the Lord of my own life. And that is all of our condition from birth. Notice that in verse 14 of Zechariah 8, that God's wrath did not relent. They were not, when God put them into exile and they scattered, he didn't quickly come to the rescue with the first sign of, God, please help us, because he knew that it was not heartfelt yet. God lovingly kept them under discipline until they fully understood what the magnitude of their sin was. But we see then in verse 15 that God purposed to do good to them. So we know that his anger and his wrath eventually did relent. So what happened between the time of verse 14 and 15? What happened between the time of their fathers and where they're at now? How did God's wrath relent? How was it stopped? Well, remember back with me in Zechariah 3, his last sermon I got to preach. Remember how Joshua came before God and was completely covered in the filth of his sin and unrighteousness, and he had no way to please God. Remember what God did with that filth and that sin? What did he say? He said, put my clean garments on him. So we know that God removed the filthy garments from Joshua and placed on him the white garments of Christ. He placed on him his righteousness and put the filthiness onto his own son, Jesus Christ. Christ took the wrath reserved for us and gave us his righteousness. That is the only way that God's wrath can relent from Zechariah 8, verse 14 to 15, from his people and from us. We cannot cause God's wrath to be um, turned away from us. Only Christ can do that. And we see he did in, in Zechariah 3. So just as God lovingly purposed to bring disaster 
on the fathers because of the rebellion. Through Christ, and only through Christ's sacrifice, can God's wrath be satisfied and be completely poured out on his son. And only through his sacrifice can he then purpose to do good again to Judah and to Jerusalem and to us this morning. We see God promising he purposed to do good to the house of Judah. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Although Judah fell under wrath, God, through, through the centuries, had preserved the lineage and allowed Jesus to come through that line and to be the one to redeem the people through his sinless life and death on the cross. So, me, so you may be asking, okay, so then if God purposed to do these things, if he purposed to um, bring his idolatrous people um, into discipline and then promised to bring them back once they had repented and once their sin had been cleared by Christ... You're using this word purposed a lot. So then what was the intention? What was the purpose behind God, why God was doing all of this? To restore his people and bring good to them. We see the answer to this purpose in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. He says, these, things, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Sound familiar? Yeah. In, in the past chapter, and we, we've heard the same call to a righteous life, to faithfulness, for his people to live a certain way. We've heard this before. So do you think that God is, is just repeating himself? Just so that he can hear his own voice? No. He's doing this so that he can continue to remind us and Israel, who are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. You think you got it. You say, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. But you don't got it yet. Um, God needs to remind us. And by emphasizing this again, he's showing us, to Israel, he's showing us this morning how important it is that we not only understand this love, but that we live in light of it, and we understand the purpose behind why he loved us. We talked about last in last week's sermon that... Um, that his divine plan and the purpose is ultimately to bring himself honor and glory. And that is not selfishness because God is God himself, right? And it's not selfish for him to want our praise and our glory and our worship because that is why we were created and that is the right way he's defined the universe. And so the way God's people, the way we reflect his character, the way we do worship and honor him and fulfill that purpose of bringing him honor, is by living out verses 16 and 17. It's by living as a people who are following his laws and reflecting his character here on the fallen earth. We see Jesus in John 14, 15 saying, if you love me, keep my commands. Right? It's one thing for Israel to say, God, we're your people, right? We're, from, we're children of Abraham. It's another for them to Keep his commands and love him, love him enough to listen to what he says and to simply obey. So God's love is purposeful. It's, it's not vague and it, God's love isn't a love that doesn't mind if we sin once in a while. But it's a love that should so captivate us because we've been saved from his wrath and from hell. It's a love that has a purpose for us to then glorify him and live lives of holiness and obedience and righteousness. Which leads us to our next bullet point. 
Our expected obedience. So let's look at these commands in verses 16 and 17. And test ourselves as, as a church this morning and as pe- God's people being representing him on earth. Are we, in fact, representing him? Let's test ourselves. Look at verse 16. Are you known for telling the truth? Well, sure you may say, I, I tell the truth most often. I'm not a liar. Well, not so fast. Do you tell the truth even when it's inconvenient for you? Even when you have to admit that you've done wrong? Is that your character? Are you, a tr- are you known for speaking the truth? On the other side of that, we're to tell the truth. In that speaking the truth is not something we're only called to do when asked. But we are to be proclaimers of the truth as Christians. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15, or 4, 4 15 says... Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That means, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, if you see a brother and sister in a pattern of sin, you are to not just sit back, but you are to humbly speak the truth in love to them. So this telling the truth isn't just, oh, when someone asks you, we are to go forth with the truth. How as a church are we ever supposed to grow if we are not sharpening one another and holding each other accountable to the standard of holiness of Christ and speaking the truth. So the first command, are we living this way as, as God's people? And I, I know this is, is hard for us. It's much more comfortable for us to not have conflict with, with anyone. It's much more comfortable for us to, to not call someone out if we see sin in their life. But we know we must if we are to honor God and reflect his character on earth. Because when we don't speak the truth in love, really we're, we prove that we love ourselves more than we love God and we love our neighbor when we do so. So we need to be a people that speak the truth, that are known for that. The next command here in verse 16, to render in your gates judgments that are true and make peace. Now, you might be saying, okay, I don't know how I'm supposed to keep this command. I don't, there's, no, I don't, there's not city gates in this church. I, I don't, this is kind of hard for me to relate to. There's, every day you're rendering judgments um, that are either true or false. And every day you have the opportunity to make peace and to spread that peace. Or you have the opportunity to, to sow sin and to, that leads to discord and chaos. One example of this, of of how we as a church can render right judgments in the gates and speak truth and make peace, is if you were in this church a few years ago, uh, you may remember that there was a church discipline issue that our church was called to come to a decision on. There was a simple, it was a simple, clear issue about an unbiblical divorce that suddenly became clouded in the minds of a few people who are very close to the ones who committed the sin. Now, this verse is commanding us as God's people to to render judgments that are true and to make peace. We may say, oh, that's easy. But please, saints, don't take this for granted. Don't quickly say that, oh, I do that all the time. We know that the only one who is 100% true all the time is God himself. Therefore, our allegiance must be 100% to him first. 
Because we don't know when we ourselves or when someone close to us might fall into sin and might need to be called to repent. And it's then when this is really tested, are you really willing to to make true judgments? Or will it become clouded for you once it gets personal? Right? That's when the rubber meets, meets the road, right? So what we can do in the meantime is we can say, do I know God? Do I know his word? Do, is my allegiance 100% to him? Do I, like Jesus said, have a love for God that's so great that it looks like hate for my mother, my father, my sister, my brother? Jesus says, if you will love me, you will, you will hate them. Of course, um, using that is, is, a, is a good exaggeration to say, your love for me should be so great. Do we have that 100% allegiance to God? that we are able to make true and unclouded judgments when it, when it comes down to it. God, that's what God calls Israel to, and that's what God calls us as a church to this morning, so that we can glorify him and, and display his righteousness in the earth. Now, the second part of this, making peace, is closely tied to true judgments, wouldn't you agree? For example, you know that any nation or any organization that is corrupt and starts to render judgments not based on truth but based on pleasing man or based on what their own preferences are, if that organization or nation keeps doing that, it will eventually turn to chaos and self-destruct, right? We know this in the family structure. Anytime there's a mother or father who starts to pick a favorite child, that's a, dis- that's a dysfunctional family, right? When you start to render judgments not based on truth but based on your preference, we know that that, that structure will, will turn to chaos and won't be making peace at all. Um, the same way goes with the church. Any church that forsakes God's word as a source of truth and then bends to the culture will not be able to stay in peace for long, right? You might be able to appease some members of the congregation, but that structure will, will, become, un, will become unraveled. We know that because God is the one who is the source of all peace, right? And, and he is the one who holds these structures together. And when we go against his will and we forsake his ways, of course that will lead to chaos. We saw that in the life of King Solomon in Israel. Remember what he experienced? That peace that came to the nation of Israel under Solomon was just as quickly as it came, it, it left. Um, because Solomon... Um, started trusting in his own military strength. He started going after and attaining a bunch of foreign wives and bringing in false teaching. So just as quickly as Israel was said, oh, finally, we have peace in the land, just, just one sin that can creep in can, to, can knock that into chaos. So we are to make true judgments, hold fast to his word, which will lead to peace. Verse 17 of Zechariah 8 says that God's people are not to devise evil in our hearts against one another. Another one that is pretty easy for us to say, well, I'm not planning to hurt anyone, so I must be obeying this command. I'm not devising evil. Um, But let's think more about this. The verse doesn't say, don't do evil. It says, don't even devise evil against anyone else. God sees all of our hearts and he can judge the condition of, of them, and he knows all of our thoughts. So, before you quickly say, I'm, I'm not guilty of this, have you ever been angry with anyone and wished evil to happen to them? 
as God's people, we are called not to retaliate, but to turn the other cheek as we heard from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And the only way we can do this, the only way this is possible is through the gospel. It's not just, oh, Israel, be good because this is the right thing to do, but it's, we need the power of God. It's, it's not natural for any of us to say, oh, well, someone has wronged against me. I'm not going to th- devise evil or, or want to retaliate against them. The only way we can do this and not hold grudges against one another or not want to retaliate is through understanding the gospel, understanding that you and I were the enemy of God and that we were at war with him. And he had every right to kill you and to kill I on the spot for our sin. But we know that from Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin are death. But because God did not devise evil against you, but instead sent his only son to take evil from you, to save you from your sin, to take your sin and put it on Christ on the cross and punish him instead of you, and, and, and then look on you with goodness... We know that that is the only motivation we can have. That's the only power we can have not to devise evil against one another is not to seek retaliation because we have been enemies of God and he has forgiven us. When we understand this unmerited forgiveness of God extended to us, we cannot but help extend the same forgiveness to others, can we? We cannot help but not want to devise evil against them. But when someone comes and does something wrong against Kurt, instead of saying, oh, well, this is about me, I want to get back at them, by God's grace and through the power of the gospel, I can say, That's, that was me. That was me. I did that same thing to God. And I care more that he is right with God than that, and that, than that I am getting retribution toward him. Um, lastly, in verse 17, the last command we see that um, God's purposed us to live out so that we can give him honor and glory is that we are to love no false oaths. In that day, people would oftentimes, we saw this in the Sermon on the Mount as well, they would often use God's name to promise things that they couldn't hold up. They would, they would make these oaths and, and say, you know, say it in the name of God so that they could add more weight or importance or try to add more substance to what their claim was to be more believable, I guess, for people. We do the same when we, anytime we make a promise or commitment to people that we know we can't fulfill in the first place. Oftentimes, we do this in order to make ourselves look better or give people a perception of being trustworthy or reliable. We say, oh, of course I can be there. Um, or, yes, I, I, will, I will get lunch with you this, this day. Um, when we know in our minds we're not going to be able to do that, right? But we, we like to throw out these promises to make ourselves look more trustworthy. Um, but you and I both know that these promises only work for so long before our character is seen as someone who's flaky or someone who's untrustworthy. So ask yourself, am I someone who fulfills my commitments and can be trusted to get the job done, or do I make promises I can't keep? Do I, do I love false oaths? Do I myself participate in these false oaths among men so that I can give a perception of myself that isn't reality? I know that we have all been guilty of that. Um, so you may be saying, Kurt, if God loves us he, just the way he, he loved Israel and redeemed them, and he expects us to live this way in order to, to glorify him and to represent him on earth, then in, at the same time, I am not perfect at all at keeping any of these 
any of these commands he's given us, but actually the opposite. I more often stray into sin in my own ways. How can we still claim the title as God's people here on earth if we are not people that are doing his will perfectly? How can we still claim that? And the answer is, we cannot. If we are not keeping his commands, doing his ways, we cannot claim the title as God's children. Unless, unless we are covered with the perfect obedience of Christ himself. That's, that's a huge distinction we need to make. We cannot be obedient enough to represent God. We have all fallen short. The only way we can be, be called as God's sons and daughters is if we are covered in the perfect obedience of Christ himself. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's you and I, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ's obedience, the many many will be made righteous. That's God's elect. That's his church. So, th- so, so it was through Christ's death on the cross that we can be saved from the wrath of God. And it's also through the Christ's death on the cross that we can be looked at as completely obedient. We talked about that again in Sunday school this morning. It is his obedience that is credited to our account. That means that if you have truly repented and put your trust in Christ, then he sees you and counts you as completely righteous and obedient in him. And therefore, there's nothing more you can do to be loved by God than, than, than you are right now. There's no amount of obedience you can do to earn more of his favor. And if you are truly a blood-bought Christian in Christ, there is nothing, no disobedience you can do for him to kick you out of his family, right? We, we know that to be true. We are, it is dependent on him and him alone and his grace. And those who have been graciously saved by Jesus will then strive every day to be these obedient people. Because we know that it is, um, it is God's will for us to, to glorify him through living this way. We know that it is good for him. And we also know that it is best for us if we live in obedience to him. He is a good master. And he is a, a kind master. And his ways are right and true. And that's the way he's created us to live. And so we should want to live in this obedience as well. Anyone who tries to take this gospel claim and use it as an excuse for a lifestyle of disobedience proves by that mindset that the truth isn't in them in the first place. 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if, if you say, Oh well, okay. Then I don't have to be obedient. Christ did it for me, so I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna try anymore. You're showing by that attitude that the truth isn't in you. That you don't know Him. If that if that is your heart's disposition, because Israel previously lived a life of thinking that they were God's people, Abraham's descendants, but didn't really love Him by keeping His commandments. We know that. Um, that's why God brought disaster upon them in the first place. Um, because they were being disobedient. In, in, verses ni- in verse 19 of Zechariah 8, um, we see that they mourned over and fasted over the consequences of this rebellion. Verse 19 of, of Zechariah 8, we see that they fasted in the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months. So that they could remember the time of their 
when they rebelled and they could mourn over it. What happened in these months? I won't turn this sermon into a history lesson, but I'll give you a quick overview of, of what, these, what happened in these months and why they decided to fast. Fourth month of 597 BC was when their walls, the walls of Jerusalem, were, were breached by Babylon. In the fifth month, it was when the city of Jerusalem actually fell to Babylon. In, verse se- in the seventh month, it was when Gedaliah was assassinated, which effectively left Judah devoid of any Jewish leadership or any Jews altogether. And in the 10th month, which was actually at the start of the year, um, was when the first siege began, um, when, they, when Babylon first came to, to break down the walls of Jerusalem. So these, all these months that they're fasting, they're mourning and remembering the time when their disobedience led to God sending an oppressor. Right? So it's remembering that, um, that they had sinned against God and mourning over that. If you can remember back a few weeks ago in Zechariah chapter 7, we heard the people ask the Lord, do we have to keep on fasting in the fifth month? Do we have to keep on doing these fasts? And God basically said, well, why, do, why do you fast? Has it been for me? This implies that no, they weren't doing the fasts for him, but they were doing them uh, with wrong motives. But look here what it says at the end of verse 19 in Zechariah 8. The fast shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Although God's people had been disobedient and had rebelled against him, because of the redeeming work of Christ, God could promise them that he wouldn't forget his covenant. And that through Christ there would be a season in the future that that fasting would turn to feasting. That that sorrow would turn into joy. And that that mourning over sin would be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And fresh white garments could be put on them. And they could move into a season of rejoicing. So God isn't saying keep your head down and keep, keep wallowing over your sin. But pick your head up and look to me, look to Christ and I will turn your, your fasting and mourning into glorious, joyful, cheerful feasting. God is saying that there will be a day that he will dwell with his people and that there will be a true reason to rejoice. This would have been amazingly sweet news to Zechariah's ears, considering the condition of the nation of Israel at this time. Remember that the wall had not been completed yet and that the city was still in rubble and that the, the, the temple had yet to be built. The people in Israel at this time were struggling to make a living. The economy was a disaster. And they were struggling to worship their God without a temple. And yet, through Israel's brokenness, God promises and brings this prophecy of restoration to his people. We know that the prophecy will ultimately be fulfilled in the future after Christ has come and gathered his people with him in heaven. We see in Revelation chapter 19, a picture of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. I want to read verses 6 through 9 of Revelation 19, so you can get a snapshot of what this prophecy will be fulfilled in. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult 
and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteousness is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. We saints are the bride in this picture. We are God's people. The church is the bride of Christ. See here that we we are dressed in bright linen and and fine clothing representing the the clothing that Christ put on us and our right standing before God in in our state. This promise is an amazing one for Israel and an amazing promise for us this morning. Many of you right now are going through struggles in your life that have simply worn you out. Many of you are in that place. Some of you might be facing circumstances that look impossible in your life. I know that although I'm still young, I grow weary in my daily battle against sin. For all of us, God brings this message that there is nothing too hard for him. There is nothing too broken that he cannot restore. If we would trust in him and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have the greatest hope we could ever imagine, namely being with God and rejoicing with him for eternity. He's inviting us to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's saying, Israel, although your, your sins were like scarlet, I will, make them white as, I will make you white as snow. And the good news is that we can start this worship of God right now. We don't have to wait until heaven for this feast. Um, in Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. There's fullness of joy in the presence of God that we can have right now. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Although we face trials now, we know that because we have access to God's presence through Christ, we have access to the fullness of joy in knowing and being known by Him. So although the outlook looked dismal for Israel during that time, and although the outlook in your life or, or whatever is going on might look dismal in your life, God is saying, you can have the fullness of joy in my presence now. It will be fully consummated in heaven, but you can know me and have your satisfaction in me. This leads us to our final point, God's magnetic grace. I know that's a, that's a strange adjective, maybe one you haven't heard, but I can't take credit for it. I'll, I'll have to say a few years ago, I remember hearing a, a sermon from Pastor Keith where he used the analogy of, of God's grace being a magnet and us, when we link to him, also being polarized and causing others, drawing others in as well. So God's magnetic grace. This fullness of joy that we can experience now in God's presence, it should naturally spill over into every area of our life. Wouldn't you agree? And it should cause those around us to want that same intimacy with God that we have. Let's read verses 20 through 23 of Zechariah 8 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going." 
Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We see a picture here of God's magnetic grace. Few things amaze me about this prophecy. First, the fact in verse 21 that these Gentile people said, let us go at once. Notice it says, let us go at once. The people didn't say, I'll go seek God after uh, you know, I get old and retire. Or they didn't say, I'll, I'll go seek God tomorrow. Or I'll, I'll go seek God eventually when my life starts to get bad and I actually need God. No. In this verse, it's amazing to see that God's magnetic grace causes people to say, let us go at once. There's an urgency there. And this sense of urgency can only be the result of God. These people realize, they get it. They say, tomorrow isn't promised. I could die tomorrow. And we should have the same urgency to go to, into the presence of God and also to share this good news of the gospel with others who we don't know what their, uh, what their destiny is. We don't know if they will die tomorrow. So just the same way they said, let us go at once to seek God. May we have that same urgency as well. Charles Spurgeon says, in a very hard quote, very sobering, but a truth we need to hear so much to ground us back in reality. Charles Spurgeon says, Men are dying. Hell is filling. The grave is gorged, and yet is insatiable. And the man of destruction is not yet satisfied. Shall we lie down in wicked satisfaction, yielding to base laziness? Awake, arise, you Christians. If we have tasted the sweet fellowship with God and know that Christ has saved us from death, will we not want to also tell others about the good that we have received and the blessing that we have received from God? There is an African proverb that I saw in my studies. This, is, this proverb doesn't come from the Bible, but it applies here. This African proverb says, there is only one crime that is worse than murder in the African desert. And that is to know where the water is and not to tell anyone else. There is only one crime that's worse than murder. It's knowing in the African desert where water is and not telling anyone else. And saints, we are in the desert this morning. We in this world are in a dry and parched land. We have the source of water. By God's grace, we have Christ. We have the fullness of joy in him. What is keeping us from telling others about this water source? Do we love ourselves more than we love God and love others? We prove so when we keep our mouths closed. The second thing that amazes me about this prophecy is verse 22. We see strong nations coming to seek God in Jerusalem. These are probably the same nations that oppressed God's people. These strong nations are known for relying upon their own strength, whether that be financial strength or military strength. These nations are known for not needing God because they think that they can get a long life without, without him. They think they can do it themselves because they're strong enough. So the fact that these strong nations are coming to seek God is a reminder that God's grace can save 
even the people that we think are farthest from God. Amen? Do you know people that appear to be strong in your life and have no desire to waste their time with God? Do you know of people who seem to be convinced that he isn't real and think that they are immortal? This passage shows that no one is too far from God's grace. Because salvation isn't dependent on us or our persuasiveness, but it's dependent fully on God and his effectual drawing, we know that uh, we must be simple messengers, but it's ultimately his grace that softens the hardest heart. And the person who thinks that they are the strongest and they can do it on, them own, on their own. John 6.37 reaffirms this point. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Notice Jesus doesn't say in John 6, All that, all that think that I'm great and that choose me and that we're smart enough to find out that I'm the best way. No. Jesus says that all the Father gives to me will come to me. Not maybe come to me, will. So we know that this drawing of people that Jesus is doing is not based on us. It's not based on human wisdom. It's based on the sovereignty of God and his election of saints before the foundation of the world. Yes, we are still to be messengers messengers of this, and that is a great privilege for us. But know that there is no one that is too far from the grace of God, and he can soften the hardest heart, and he will draw those that are his. So those who come to Christ are the sheep whom God knows already. The the third and final point that amazes me about these final verses in Zechariah 8 It's not only that unexpected people come to seek a God with an unexpected urgency, but what really what what else amazes me is that men from 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 the nations of every tongue will want to go with the Jew to know God. This picture we get is of ten men taking hold of the robe of a Jew. Because this is a prophecy, Zechariah is is prophetic in nature. Ten symbolizes completeness, showing that the complete amount of people that God wills to draw from from every nation will come to him. Although this, so this prophecy is partially fulfilled in Acts 2, um, when we see devout men from every nation, they came together. But we know that this is fully, this prophecy will be fully realized in heaven when Christ gathers his people together of every tribe, every tongue, of every nation. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, it shows a picture of the scene. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen? So the question for you this morning is, will you be part of this gathering? Will you be part of this great worship of God? Will you be part of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Are you living a life of continual repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, desiring to obey His commands above all? 
realizing that your own obedience apart from him is worthless. If so, then has his magnetic grace gotten a hold of you? Has Christ captivated your life? Is he your first love? Is he your greatest desire? Are you drawn to him? And do you desire others to know him as well? My prayer is that we this morning as a church would not wait another day to trust in Christ and not wait another day to start telling others about him. But instead, you would be able to say to yourself and and those whom God has put in your life, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. I myself am going to seek God. That's my prayer for us this morning. That we would love him enough to say, I'm going to him and I'm inviting and taking as many people as I can with the life and breath that he has given me. Let us close in prayer. God, I thank you that your love has a purpose. I thank you that it's not haphazard. I thank you that you just don't You don't just love us and allow us to continue living lives of sin and rebellion, God. But that you, Lord, have have purposed to save us and to make us into an obedient people. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust in Christ's obedience because we know that, that we fail daily. We need your grace. We need to stand upon you and not our own works. I pray, Father, that we would not grow discouraged in this battle. That no matter what circumstances we're in, Father, that we would see that in you there is the fullness of joy. And one day there will be a great feast where we get to be a part of. In the meantime, Lord, may we be faithful evangelists, loving others enough and loving you enough to open our mouths and to tell people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a way to be saved from death, from hell. And there is a way to know who you are, God, and to be in a relationship with you. Father, would you do that that amazing work this morning amongst us as a people? And would you cause us to be that light in this city of San Jose and in this world to love others, and to take them along with us into your presence, God. To pull them along if need be. We're in a battle. We're not called to comfortable Christianity, but we're called to take up our swords and fight, God. May we live our lives as such, knowing that tomorrow isn't promised. We love you and we thank you for gathering us. And we thank you for saving us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name.